on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. Uh, Bill, yesterday the federal trial started in Pittsburgh uh, of the of a fellow by the name of uh, Robert Bauer. Um, Eleven people were slaughtered uh, while worshiping at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh back in 2018, I think. And Bauer's charged with what? He, he's charged with federal hate crimes uh, and uh, resulting in death. And um, he's facing a death penalty. That's another conversation that you and I have often had about our opposition to that sanction. But nevertheless, it's really a death penalty trial. He's all but conceded the facts that he slaughtered these people, um, many of whom were in their 80s and 90s. Um, and uh, he is openly saying that it's because he hates Jews and Jews are rodents and we should be rid of them. He had a social media platform that uh, espoused that, that had 300 followers apparently. Um, the evidence is just starting to be presented in that case. Um, the reason why I think it's, it's, there's a thousand reasons why it's really important to follow that case, but uh, in Massachusetts, in New England, the Anti-Defamation League uh, issues an uh, audit um, that comes out annually of uh, incidents, quote-unquote incidents, of anti-Semitism um, that arise uh, in a year. And uh, we read an article from the State House News Service, um, a really well-written article by an investigative reporter who was with us this morning to talk about the ADL report and what it finds, and her name is Allison Kuznets, and she is on the phone with us, I believe. Allison? Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. No, thank you so much for being here. Uh, really good reporting, important reporting that you did on this report. So um, tell us, what does the audit uh, inform us of in terms of the trends of anti-Semitism? Can we go backwards one second? I really want to hear that answer, but sure. give us 30 seconds if you would, Allison. What is State House News, oh, State House News and where are, you, where are you located physically and how does it work? Sure. State House News Service, we are one of the several news outlets that operate in the State House. Uh, we um, help news outlets throughout the state that say not necessarily everybody has a State House reporter anymore, but folks can subscribe to us and use our articles. And we're also the source that a lot of lobbyists, lawmakers will come to our site to see really the progress we track sessions, gavel to gavel, committee hearings. So if you're looking for how a bill is going to advance, how an issue is advancing very incrementally in the State House or for the bigger, pic bigger picture issues, you can come to State House News Service for that type of information. So why did the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League Report, come to you and come to your attention? So there's a number of policy recommendations at the end of the report after we read a lot about um, how anti-Semitism, um, white supremacist propaganda, anti-LGBTQ um, incidents are really rising in the state. Um, so there's a number of policy recommendations at the end that have to do with uh, focusing on online harassment, that focus on expanding the definition of hate crimes um, and moderating social media, things like that, after we get some of the alarming statistics in the beginning of the report. So it's a synergy between bills that are pending in the legislature to address hate crimes and anti-Semitism and the fact that the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, has put out this report which says anti-Semitism and hate is on the rise in Massachusetts. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And there's also actually... Uh as the ADL released this report, there were also statements coming from Governor Maura Healey and from Attorney General Andrea Campbell expressing... Uh, 
appreciation for the ADL for putting out this report and also a commitment to combating hate in, the, in their respective capacities in Massachusetts. So uh, we're talking about the, this report uh, chronicles incidents, both in terms of the New England region, which is six states, I believe, and in Massachusetts specifically. And could you tell us what is the trend? What are we seeing from that report? Sure. So it's a very alarming trend. So as far as anti-Semitism, Massachusetts out of the whole country had the sixth highest number of anti-Semitic incidents. And that's looking at rising harassment um, and vandalism uh, assaults. Um, so there, the report actually says that 71 cities and towns across Massachusetts had an incident of anti-Semitism, at least one anti-Semitic incident in 2022. Is, that, the, is that a lot? It is a lot. It's increasing. So if I pull up the report, it's an increase of, so we had, there were 152 incidents of anti-Semitic attacks in 2022. And then in 2021, um, there were uh, 58. So it, it went from 152 in 2022 to 58 in 2021. So it is continuing to rise, the yeah. number of anti-Semitic incidents. And yeah. could you go back to that for just one second? I don't want anyone's eyes to glaze over because we're talking about numbers, but it sounds like a two to three hundred percent increase in anti-Semitic incidents in Massachusetts comparing 22 to 21. Is that part of a long term trend or is or can we look at 2022 as being an aberration for some reason? No, I think we're seeing it as a long term trend that if you see that there's really continues to be countless reports of, you know, swastikas being drawn on schools and playgrounds and public property. And then you have rising incidents of, for example, um, a rabbi who was stabbed outside of a school in Brighton um, in July 2021. So you're just seeing escalating rises of hate and you're seeing escalating um, incidents of white supremacist propaganda as well. So really an outsized uh, distribution of hate. And as you said earlier, uh, Alison Kutzenitz, um, the, there's a 41% increase in Massachusetts. What is triply alarming is that nationally there's also a 36% increase um, from last year. And Massachusetts, you said, ranks sixth, yes. sixth highest increase in the country. Is that right? Yes, sixth highest number. Sixth highest number. In 2022. Allison, I'm interested in what you just said about white supremacy, and I'm wondering whether, I know it's not part of your, directly part of your reporting, but if you came upon data that indicates whether or not the anti-Semitism rising in the United States, that that frightening phenomenon, correlates and or is consistent with uh, uh, racist incidents throughout the country and the state. I mean, I think you definitely, the report will log, uh, the report logs numerous organizations that um, spout all different types of bigoted statements and are really just perpetuating hate. So the report actually talks about different groups that are preaching um, down and maybe downtown Boston, like the Black Hebrew Israelite movement. Um, You have the Nation of Islam. So you have different organizations that are really hate-based as far as white supremacist information and anti-Semitic content. Um, So it really is a confluence of hate in some of these groups that are active in Massachusetts. So State House reporter Allison Kuznets, I I see here, I'm looking at uh, an abstract of the report, and I see that nationally there's just about uh, 3,700 incidents. And it says that's the largest number of incidents against Jews in the United States recorded by the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, since 1979. That's 
extremely alarming to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, does the report help you understand the source of this increase in hate? I think we're seeing a lot of online harassment, and I think that's what the report also gets at towards the end of talking about how lawmakers can combat uh, doxing, which is basically when um, someone's personal information is shared online with malicious intent. Um, I think you can see this also, you know, with the uh, Boston Mapping Project that in 2022, um, unknown creators uh, created a map of all different uh, Boston Jewish institutions with the idea of dismantling them or targeting them. So I think you really do see maybe as um, as social media continues to rise as, um, and as maybe policymakers are not as able to regulate social media and hold them accountable for targeting hate, you're seeing a rise in online hate. And that's manifesting itself out into the public square as well. You see some of these groups that are really vocal online have come out, like with Patriot Front last summer, members of the white supremacist group marching through downtown Boston in broad daylight on a weekend. I'm wondering if you could shed some light on this, and I, and I, and I know, uh, Allison, that you are a reporter and you're in that role and not being an analyst. That said, I'd like to know what is happening at the State House with regard to new proposed legislation and to the extent you feel free to comment on it, whether you think new laws actually would be effective in some ways in protecting Jews and people of color and other marginalized communities or whether we've kind of run the gambit of what the law is capable of providing. So what the legislature did, I want to say two years ago now, they passed the genocide education bill. And so that is supposed to be, um, you talk a lot about maybe education as a preventative tool. Um, so the idea of educating students who increasingly more and more students don't know what the Holocaust was, don't have a fundamental understanding that 6 million Jews were slaughtered in World War II. So there is um, curriculum now is required in Massachusetts public middle schools and high schools that uh, history of the Holocaust and other genocides need to be taught. So that's a way to raise awareness. Um, so there was money allocated, I want to say, in both the Senate and House budgets. So the budget is now needs to be reconciled that the House and Senate have both passed their own versions. But there is a pot of money in there for genocide education. Um, there, I, I don't believe there has been talk, but there could be, you know, increased funding for education, for awareness for this pot of money. Um, that's a big thing. The Senate also last week in its budget, they approved an increase in security infrastructure for outside synagogues, mosques, other houses of worship to make sure that these physical places of worship are protected. Um, so those are some of the things that are kind of pending right now on Beacon Hill. But I think I haven't heard so far yet about really how the legislature's appetite is for tackling some of the online harassment that does really seem to be needed. And the report from the ADL cites that Massachusetts would not be the first to try to really tap in into regulating social media platforms, understanding their algorithms, understanding how they're moderating hate, that the California California lawmakers passed a bill last year. So Massachusetts could follow that lead in in trying to rein in some hate online and social media platforms. Do you see appetite in the House, in the State House, in the State Senate for this kind of uh, legislation? And I ask that in the context of a report in the last few days that legislation is moving particularly slowly at a glacial pace this session. Generally. I think 
it would be embedded in maybe a bigger bill about if you're talking about hate, about harassment. But I'm I think it's too early on in the legislative cycle. So the legislature started in uh, January. Of course, we're already basically up to June. I'm not quite sure how this would shake out. But I think, you know, you have a number of lawmakers really and coming down from the top from Governor Moore Healy. Andrea Campbell, the attorney general, have really focused so much on equity and inclusion, but I'm not quite sure if they've gone so far as to say here's an actual policy or enforcement arm to really make sure um, that Massachusetts is welcoming, because that's something that the governor, we have Maura Healy, the first openly gay governor in Massachusetts, has touted Massachusetts being a very welcoming place, but this report states otherwise. It does state otherwise, but, uh, you know, I was looking yesterday, Allison Kuznis, at the uh, Asian American uh, Commission, uh, Massachusetts, I think it's called Asian American Commission. They report a steady increase in anti-Asian, um, both assaults and harassment, as defined. Um, and the, the same, obviously the same is true uh, with the Muslim American uh, civil rights union, they too report an increase. Um, in terms of your reporting, if you can answer, to what do we attribute this rise in hate? It seems to, the, the increase seems to have begun about 2017, uh, this remarkable increase, the spike, I guess is a fair way to describe it. Uh, to what do you think it's attributable? I mean, I think a lot of that is attributed to online hate, that a lot of folks uh, can gather. It's a very different way to gather and to talk in maybe some unregulated spaces online and to have those views um, continue to cycle that, to, to just see how viral um, different posts, different messages can be in online following and recognizing that some of these people can be very anonymous online that they don't need to show their identity like they would if they were in, a, in the public square. So I would attribute that a lot to um, online hate, online activity. And I think we also just saw with COVID, though, bringing awareness to so many of these disparities. Um, and I guess going back to the other question, as far as the lawmakers, I think that they do, however, have a focus on addressing racial disparities in other ways. So maybe they're not always focusing on combating hate, but they're making sure that people who have been marginalized, who haven't had the best access, you know, like healthcare, education, transportation, I think that is at the forefront of Beacon Hill's mind. So it'd be interesting how they take those racial disparities, marginalization, and apply that also to a lens of equity and tolerance. So, Allison, we are nearing the end of our time, but as a question I have to ask, which is, do you see a uh, disposition in the state legislature to take on this complicated, difficult question of how to regulate online hate speech? Is that actually something at the top of the legislative agenda, or it's just talk? I, I would say listening to what the House Speaker and Senate President have outlined in their January addresses when the session came back in, I don't believe that was at the top of the agenda. So I think just looking at how Beacon Hill operates, I think that would be a hard fight in the beginning to get that passed. I think we see like, the Senate president is very focused on education, House Speaker focused maybe, you know, on hospitals, healthcare settings. So I have not heard that really being vetted, but you will also see these same leaders come out very strongly um, when there's an incident of hate. And you'll see at 
um, different rallies for LGBTQ plus individuals, for transgender visibility days, things like that. You will see these leaders. So they are definitely very sympathetic, but I'm not quite sure what the extra boost is going to be that would allow them to take action on some legislation. Well, Allison Kuznets, I want to thank you so much uh, for all of your reporting for the State House News Service. It's a really important source for uh, what's happening in our State House uh, for so many of us. And I want to thank you for joining us today, and in particular, with this uh, extremely noteworthy, important coverage of the Anti-Defamation League report, the before, audit. Before we let Allison go, I have one last question for you. Allison, if we're not apt to see new legislation to address this question of anti-Semitism, racism, LGBTQ plus hate, and, and Asian-American incidents of hate as well, does the legislature really reduce at this point to saying, well, our thoughts and prayers are with you, and that's kind of it? Yeah, I mean, I think they definitely need to, if they're going to continue to say, like people like Governor Moore Healy, if Massachusetts is a welcoming place, but the data proves otherwise, I think that they do need to take action and say, what can we do to make sure, or even you'll hear the governor say that this is a common well. Um, so what is, what is Massachusetts going to actually do to make sure people feel safe? Because obviously what is going on right now and the ADL is really, this report is a call to action that something needs to happen to turn the page on hate and to clamp down on it. And to make people aware that this is actually the status quo in Massachusetts, that I think some of this information is really startling, that people wouldn't necessarily think that a place like Massachusetts has the sixth highest rate of anti-Semitism in the country, but it does. And looking at how many uh, Jewish lawmakers there are in, on Beacon Hill um, and really the tolerance that they really try to foment, it's not um, necessarily translating into what we see in the report. Well, that's a disturbing but nevertheless good place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Allison. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Part of what I love about being a therapist in community mental health is really getting to know people who are from really different backgrounds, including serving people who are the most vulnerable. Dan is a therapist at ServiceNet. There's a culture of thinking more deeply about the work we're doing. And for me, when I do that, that feels really good. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver. How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder. Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things. Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. 
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we welcome back to our show Judith Roberts, who is the executive director of the Literacy Project. We have also with us in the studio Amos Johnson and Tim Lovett back with us. Tim is the founder of the Comedy is a Weapon, as a Weapon, the Northampton-based organization. And we thank you all so much for being with us. Judith Roberts. This is such a bittersweet day for me. We've loved having you on the show for the last dozen-plus years, and what you do is so important. The Literacy Project is crucial to the fabric of this community, but you're leaving. You are graduating the Literacy Project. So tell us for a moment, if you would, please, about you and your plans, and I cannot thank you. Express deep, deep felt appreciation for all the Literacy Project has done. Then we'll talk to two of your graduates. So Thanks, talk, Bill. Talk to us. So I'm graduating from the Literacy Project. It's been super rewarding work. And just to see these beautiful students, scholars, make great lives for themselves, that's been the big reward. And um, I've just loved it. Best job ever. And Amos was saying on the way down, best school he's ever been to. So it's been great all around. For, the, for those of our listeners who say, I'm not quite sure what the Literacy Project is or does, tell us. So Literacy Project is basically an adult education program for folks who need a second chance to get a high school diploma and then move on with their lives. And we are in Amherst, Northampton, Greenfield, Orange, and Ware. We're a small, local nonprofit. We rely on the community support and also get funding from Mass Department of Education. That's four different centers across... Five. Five centers, I'm yeah. sorry, across Did this region. Five? That's a lot. You did. <laughs> so we have between 200 and 300 students a year. And today we're here to talk about our graduates. But there's tons of successes along the way. A person reading their first book ever. A person writing a poem. A person falling in love with learning. And we see ourselves as a learning community. We all learn together. I learn immensely from these two beautiful gentlemen that are here with us today. Uh, Tim Lovett and Amos Johnson. So let me turn, if I might, to uh, Tim Lovett, who is the founder of Comedy as a Weapon, Northampton-based comedy organization, who will be, as I understand, the keynote speaker at the graduation, and he himself is a graduate of the Literacy Project. What a story. Tell us a bit, if you would, please, about what the Literacy Project has meant to you, Tim. Well... Uh, as Judith said, it meant um, it meant for me a second chance, and it meant also discovering things that I didn't really discover the first time around in education, like uh, writing. Like I discovered I can write, and I love writing, and it and um, it's been a big part of my comedy. Which you know, the challenge, Judith, is the making people laugh is the greatest job in the world. Um, <laughs> so, but. Um, I got to, you know, I, I thank the Literacy Project for that. I went on to college after that. Um, it was a lot of things that 
me not having my diploma, I felt was holding me back. I was embarrassed to buy it. I didn't tell anybody. I just tried to navigate around it. But, you know, you know, um, the literacy project helped me navigate around that. And you received your GED or your high set from the literacy project? Yes, back in 2012, actually, when I was uh, incarcerated. And then you've gone on with your education, continued your education since then? I did. I went to uh, STIC, um, Springfield Technical Community College, and I got an IT security degree, and I went on from there. Well, that's it's it's really a story that is I I just think insp- inspirational. I'd like to hear uh, Amos Johnson from you, your involvement with the literacy project, and you are graduating this year tomorrow. Yes. Wow. Tell us about that, if you would, please. All right. So, um, I was I had my education on pause. I had a horrible experience when I was younger in high school, um, but we won't get into that. Um, and I was an addict for over a decade and I am now 21 months sober and, um, my outlet of people I, I was working with with my recovery suggested I should, I would be great for addiction studies and an addiction counselor at GCC. So I decided to try and sign up and I had... I had too like been ashamed of not having my diploma, and I had lied so much on many applications of not of actually having my GED when I didn't. Um, I forgot I didn't have it. So when I went to sign up to GCC, they were like, um, "You don't actually have your your high set or GED." And I was like, "Wait, oh yeah, I don't." So I signed up to the Literacy Project. It was really easy to sign up for. Um, I basically just went in and said, "This is my goal. I want to get my my GED." And boom, I started classes like within that week. Um, and sign up was really easy. Would you be kind enough to tell us? I know I'm not asking you to go back to with the horrors of high school, but I would be interested to know how far you got in high school and whether it was difficult at the literacy project or how difficult it was for you to pick up education after what I assume was quite a few years of not having been, well, sitting in classes. Yeah, so in high school, my brain worked differently. Um, Especially with math, I found math difficult because the teachers really wanted you to show your work. And my brain would fast forward and just pick the numbers out of the problem and come to the answer. And that was where my problem was in, was not being able to write down how quickly my brain worked to solve the math problems. And they had made it like 70% of the grade or something. So I, I failed math in high school. And then my experience with the literacy project, I came in and I told Beth that uh, about my problem. And, and she actually helped work with me and, and showed me how to, to write out the problem and the way to do it. And then I excelled in math, which I never thought I would ever be able to do. And, <laughs> and she made it make sense and locked it in. And then I got my high set in, in five weeks because I had failed the math once. <laughs> I was one point away from, from passing the math test. And then she had faith in me and made me believe in myself. And she was like, we're going to get you that extra point. And I crammed for two weeks, and then I passed the math. And then I was like, that's it, we're done? It was like five weeks, and I was like disappointed. I was sad to leave there because it was such a great experience. And she was like, you can come back and volunteer and help tutor other students. So I did that until just last week at the last class, which was last Wednesday, and it was bittersweet 
because I didn't want it to end. It was the best educational experience. I, I am loving these stories. These stories are so poignant and real. And you guys, just applause, applause, applause. Thank you. Great. Tim Lovett and Amos Johnson and Judith Roberts. We're going to be back more with the Literacy Project and its graduation and two of these amazing graduates right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Springfield teacher is facing serious charges. Robert Gale Sr., a teacher at STEM Middle Academy, allegedly raped and assaulted a middle school student in the closet at the school. Investigators say the abuse began in 2021. Gale was arraigned this week in Springfield District Court and is being held on $200,000 cash bail. Gale pleaded not guilty to the charges and is denying the accusations. Gale has been on administrative leave since March 31st. A pretrial conference is set for June 27th. Police continue to investigate the cause of a jet ski boat collision that took the life of 51-year-old Carlos Lopez Torres. Torres was found yesterday after a three-day search of the Connecticut River. His body was found in a debris field at the bottom of the river, according to state police. Police had responded at about 7 p.m. on Sunday to a call that a man, later identified as Lopez Torres, on a jet ski collided with a boat in the Northampton section of the river. The two people aboard the boat involved in the accident are being treated at Bay State for serious injuries. Police are investigating after a teenager drowned in a swimming pool in Feeding Hills on Memorial Day. The 17-year-old boy was found unresponsive in the pool around 11.30 p.m. Crews attempted life-saving measures but were unsuccessful. The incident is being investigated by the Agawam Police Detective Bureau and the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit assigned to the Hamden County District Attorney's Office. Mostly sunny and a smoky haze out there today with a high of 80 to 84. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 86 to 90. Another shot at 90 on Friday with some afternoon showers and thunderstorms. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Bajo el fuego de los conservadores, el presidente de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, trabajó arduamente el martes para vender a sus compañeros republicanos el techo de la deuda y el acuerdo presupuestario que negoció con el presidente Joe Biden y obtener la aprobación a tiempo para evitar un incumplimiento potencialmente desastroso de Estados Unidos. Los líderes del House Freedom Caucus de extrema derecha criticaron el compromiso por no cumplir con los recortes de gastos que exigen y prometieron tratar de detener la aprobación por parte del Congreso. Una facción conservadora mucho más grande, el Comité de Estudio Republicano, se negó a tomar una posición, dejando a McCarthy a la casa de votos. El martes por la noche se avecinaba una prueba clave cuando el Comité de Reglas de la Cámara consideraría el proyecto de ley de 99 páginas y votaría para enviarlo al Pleno de la Cámara para una votación prevista para el miércoles por la noche. En otras informaciones, Donald Trump dijo el martes que si vuelve a ser elegido presidente en 2024, buscaría acabar con la ciudadanía automática para los niños nacidos en Estados Unidos de inmigrantes en el país sin autorización. Trump, el favorito para la nominación presidencial republicana en un campo de candidatos cada vez más concurrido, dijo en un video de campaña publicado en Twitter que emitiría una orden ejecutiva instruyendo a las agencias federales a detener lo que se conoce como ciudadanía por derecho de nacimiento. Cualquier acción de este tipo 
tipo por parte de Trump seguramente generaría un desafío legal. La orden ejecutiva propuesta planificada para el primer día de un segundo mandato de Trump requeriría que al menos uno de los padres sea ciudadano estadounidense o residente permanente legal para que sus hijos se conviertan automáticamente en ciudadanos estadounidenses, dijo su campaña en un comunicado de prensa. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are looking at the Literacy Project's graduation. This is not like the graduate where the old guy goes up to Dustin Hoffman and says, I have one word for you, young man. Plastics. <laughs> that was a bad piece of advice. Thank you, Hollywood, for that. But we do have a real celebration, which is the Literacy Project's graduation. One of the persons who is graduating from the Literacy Project, as we said, is Judith uh, Roberts, who has been the executive director of the Literacy Project for how many years, Judith? Sixteen wonderful years. And you're graduating. This will be your last graduation as the executive director. Yes. Congratulations on an incredible run. Want to tell us what the future may hold for you? Don't know yet, but I am job hunting. Can I write on my resume, Bill Newman loves me? Yes, <laughs> as, as long as you add the words a lot. <laughs> okay, good. All set then. Well, let me turn now, if I might, to uh, Tim Lovett, who is the founder of Comedy as a Weapon, uh, the Northampton-based organization, who will be the keynote speaker. Can you give us a bit of a preview about what your talk to the graduates will be and what you will be focusing on, Tim? Well... I'll be more focusing on uh, the graduates, but I will be speaking on my experiences and, uh, and, and and I'm sure all the trials and tribulations we all went through, like uh, Amos said, like lying about having your uh, diploma and um, just, you know, navigating around it. But, you know, ultimately, you know, we're going to, it's a celebration. So we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to make it a good time. We're going to laugh, you know, we're going to, um, you know, just praise everybody who is under that tent. Well, you're, you are a comedy writer. I assume there might be a, a light line or two in there. A, a light line? A light, a light, not a light, but a, a, a uh, funny line or two in your speech. Oh, yeah, yeah, most definitely. I mean, <laughs> you know, they asked me to do it, so they're going to get me to do it. <laughs> Got it. L let me turn now, if I might, to Amos Johnson. You told us about how you achieved your eyesight or your GED through the Literacy Project. Uh, could you share more of your life story after that, please? Yeah, so I did my high set, and I went back to tutor more students. And then the teacher, Beth, had... Um, a message from a GCC success class for recovered addicts. So she ran it by me and I signed up and I'm currently attending that class now at GCC. Um, and it's to set you up with like people and like a whole community of support there for recovered addicts. And it's a great class. It's run by the opioid task force. And um, I also plan to go to GCC in the fall for the addiction studies. I'd like to go back to something you were telling us about earlier, which is that one aspect of the Literacy Project program for you that was so important was you had failed. They told you you failed at math in high school, so you didn't get a diploma. By the way, how far did you get in high school? Oh, I got to 11th grade. 
and you picked this up with the Literacy Project. Did, you, and did I understand correctly, not only did you pass the math, but it turns out you actually have uh, very, very highly uh, evolved math skills. Is that right? Yeah, um, my brain will fast-forward math problems, and I, I can conclude to the answer quickly. The problem I have, though, is, is showing the work. And then, so Beth had me teaching the other students and tutoring them to also help myself show the work, because you have to do the steps. You can't just be like, I know the answer. Right, there's nothing like teaching yeah. in order to learn. I'd like to go back to uh, Judith Roberts, if I might. The graduation is where and when and open to whom? It's open to the public. It's June 1st, 5 o'clock, under the big tent on the lawn at Greenfield Community College. And it's a beautiful celebration. Everyone's invited. Um, you'll get to see these two guys in, in the flesh and um, many others who are graduating from our five locations for the Literacy Project. And I just wanted to say, for folks out there who don't know, the GED and the High Set are two co corporate names for the high school equivalency test. So students have to study at the Literacy Project and then take and pass tests in five subject areas, reading, writing, math, science, and social studies, and it is not an easy way out. It is very challenging, and every year about 20% of our students graduate and go on community college, job training programs, making a better life for themselves. And the future of the Literacy Project without you, I sadly say, Judith Roberts? It's going to be beautiful. And is there a search for your, uh, no one's going to replace you, but there will be a new executive director. Is there a search ongoing now? Yes, and watch the newspaper. We're getting ready to announce. Oh, you are. La, 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 life goes on. <laughs> How, Absolutely. However, sadly. Uh, I'd like to ask you both uh, about a final word, or ask you for a final word about what the Literacy Project has meant, and if there are listeners saying, maybe I should become involved in that, maybe I have a friend who could help with that, what do you say to, what do you say to them? Um, I say that you should just do it, because usually we're stuck in a fixed mindset, and I learned about the growth mindset theory at the Literacy Project, where you knock out those negative thoughts of why bother, I'm just going to fail, which I had when I first went there. And Elizabeth taught me the growth mindset theory where you create positive thinking and therefore you are more able to succeed with that. And you, as you told us, are continuing your education at GCC now, today, yes. as we speak. Well, let me turn, if I might, from Amos Johnson back to Tim Lovett graduate and founder of this wonderful comedy enterprise. What's your final thoughts with regard to the Literacy Project? And in particular, for those who are listening, say, I wonder if my friend so-and-so might, might become involved with the Literacy Project. What do you say to that person? Well, um, obviously, it's a great, you know, a uh, great thing to be involved with the Literacy Project. But it is. It's, it's intimidating, like uh, Judith just said. I mean, it's challenging, so you are sort of, uh, especially if you've been away from education for a while, just imagine if you, you know, uh, been away from the gym and somebody's like, yeah, well, let's go do CrossFit, you know, then it's like, <laughs> you know. Let's it, run a marathon. <laughs> right. It's, it's intimidating, but, you know, if you, you know, you put in the work, you keep going every day, eventually you'll get there. Um 
you know, I I haven't got to the marathon level yet, but <laughs> the other thing I just want to say for you, Tim, and you, Amos, and you both embody it. They don't call it graduation; they call it commencement, and that's because it's the start of a new chapter in your life. And okay. um, both of you have just really impressed me that you're ready for the next set of challenges. And Judith, nothing but thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Judith Roberts, Tim Lovett, Amos Johnson. Thank you both so very much. Thank you all so very much. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having Thanks. us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. We finally entered into a more balanced real estate market. Hi, I'm Craig Delapena, a part of the Trailside team at the Murphy's Realtors. I've been helping buyers and sellers in our valley and beyond for close to 20 years. I specialize in homes near rail trails, as well as antique or historic homes. Together, we'll create a plan that gets you to the next chapter and will minimize your stress along the way. Visit NorthamptonRealtor.com innovator. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. I am so happy that we have back with us in the studio Diane Haar and Fran Kidder, two of the artists who make this valley an amazing place. And they are with us because we want you to know about their new show at the Oxbow in East Hampton, starting, I believe, today. No, not today. Starting when? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Well, I'm pretty close. Better a day early <laughs> than a day late, or a dollar short. So let, let's hear about the show, please. Diane Hart, where and when and why and what's in it? Okay. Um, I have the front room and uh, Fran has the back room. And um, my... At the Oxbow. At the Oxbow Gallery in East Hampton. And um, my show is based on... Um, the interiors of Baroque churches, and I started doing those because I have spent a lot of time in Italy, and particularly Rome. Okay, so you're drawing or you're painting. What medium? What's there? It's acrylic on canvas, and um, 
I did a lot of studies last year. I went back to Rome for three months. Oh, work, 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 work. So How hard. do you ever manage to do <laughs> no, that, Diane it's Hart? It's really difficult, but I did it. <laughs> you also lived in Rome for a while. I lived in Rome since <clears throat> 1999, and I had been influenced, inspired by Roman architecture for all those years, and have been painting mostly the outside of buildings, intersecting roof lines, and that I'm fascinated by. Yes, but, I'm, 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 I'm a happy owner of a couple yes, of those Diane Hard uh, paintings <laughs> with, with the roof lines. I never thought of the aerial view of a city being so utterly fascinating and how they come Ew. together, either intentionally or unintentionally. <laughs> What's the answer to that, by the way, the roof lines? Is this some sort of architectural genius, or is this simply found art? Well... Where I was living, I remember the first uh, building that I lived in, uh, apartment, which I think you saw, I'd look out at, down at the roof lines. I lived on the top of the building, and that's what I saw, and I thought, these are wonderful. Uh, I'm going to do paintings of these. And then as I went to other cities, I would see Etruscan art intermingling with uh Roman buildings from Roman times or uh, buildings from later periods also, and they just all came together. And now you're moving to interiors. And I, yes, I I've did this whole series of interiors. I thought it was a wonderful challenge because the Baroque is so complicated. Tell us what Baroque means. What is it? Uh, well, Baroque is, started in the 1600s, early 1600s. And it was and, quite Baroque. And I, it was <laughs> quite <laughs> elaborate. They wanted some place that you would walk into and you would feel, oh, this must be what heaven feels like. And are we talking about paintings? Are we talking about stained yeah. glass windows? What All are we talking about? that. Uh, not so much stained glass. That surprised me when I first went to Italy. I thought there'd be more stained glass, as you see in France, but there's not. There's um, little chapels with a lot of paintings in, and, um, you know, they're, they're like museums you can walk into. There's so many famous painters who work in them. Uh, but I was more interested in... Um, uh, the ceilings and the arches, the way they intersected. And uh, up there, there's a lot of sculpture. And this is a continuing inspiration for your paintings, or you actually are painting the paintings or the ceilings? What, what do you do? Well, I start with the kind of foundation of what I see, uh, the arches and anything that's geometrical. And um, then I'm at heart, I'm a totally... Uh, non-objective artists. So I end up combining shapes that aren't combined, and I end up with colors that aren't there. And um, in the end, it's uh, very abstract. But it also tells a story. Your paintings speak a story, at least to me. And I don't know if that's intentional, but I'd appreciate your comment on that, Diane Hoare. I, I I think what I intend to do is capture something of, um, in, in the Baroque, what it feels like. And it feels um, kind of emotionally stimulating in a way, and also sort of jewel-like when you walk into these, and you see so much, and it's so elaborate. 
Yeah, and in your paintings. And I try I, to capture that in these paintings in particular. Which I know you do, and I am always struck by what color is that that Diane Haar has created there? I don't know that color, but boy, is it an astounding uh, use of pigment. I mean, really. I love mixing color. <laughs> your, your show, uh, Diane Haar and Fran Kidder show, is at the Oxbow in East Hampton. The opening is tomorrow evening. Is there an artist? Tomorrow to, during the day. To, tomorrow during the day. The reception is Saturday. Oh. Well, we're going in the afternoon, Saturday. It's not okay. in the, the opening, right? Okay. Yeah. The but reception then, is in yeah. the afternoon on Saturday. Three to six. Three to six. And then we have another one on um, East Hampton's uh, Arts, Arts Walk. Walk Night, uh, which um, is on June 8th. And I have hired um, a trio to play Baroque music for that evening. Oh, sounds lovely. <laughs> Absolutely lovely. At the Oxbow in East Hampton. So this is Diane Horn, Fran Kidders, their show. One of you is in the front room. I believe that's that's you, Diane. And uh, Fran, you're in the back room, mm -hmm. uh, which yep. is it's because it's a two-room gallery, yep. the Oxbow in East Hampton. Fran, tell us about your your collection and what you were showing. Um, okay. Well, I my paintings are uh, of plants, and they are plants that I have noticed in the t past 20 years going to and fro from my studio. Which is where? Which is in the Arts and Industry Building in Florence, which is, uh, uh, as far as I understand, an old converted toothbrush factory. Um, but these plants are everywhere. They're over a hundred. And I just have been struck by the abundance of them and the incongruity of them with their kind of grim industrial setting. And so I just finally thought, I got to do something with these plants with, and do some paintings. And so um, the paintings feature odd um, details of the building, like exit signs and pipes and um, weird stuff that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a a still life painting of a plant, you know. So I try to play up that contrast. And uh, and the contrast is between the... The liveliness and, you know, the greenery, the, the um, uh, sort of beauty of these plants. And then, I mean, the building has an aura of past labor, you know, intense labor and suffering, perhaps, of these lives that, uh, I know someone who worked there at 16 against the law, I believe, and against her parents' wishes, but, you know, she wanted some cash. She wanted to buy a car. <laughs> so, I, uh, you know, it's a, it was just an interesting contrast. It is an interesting contrast to me. Also, the fact that these plants, which were um, left by departing tenants, are now nurtured and, and um, they're, they're thriving because of this guy who is the uh, maintenance engineer of the building. His name is Chris. And it's sort of his project, you know, these plants. And he's been there a long time, and the plants are kind of his babies. The so. plants prosper. What medium do you work in? Oil. They're all oil, um, and they're, they're, some of them have some collage in them, uh, sort of under the paint, and which adds to the kind of complexity of this 
you know, it's not a um, sort of elegant setting for these plants. It's rough. I'd like to know if this is in, in the right uh, uh, area of uh, artistic expression. I, I own at home, I have a cartoon by an editorial political cartoonist, Ron Cobb, and shows a man sitting on a bench staring at a plant, a one single flower that is growing out between the cracks of the sidewalk in a city. And it's that kind of contrast between somehow life finds a way to go on to survive. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether that is part of what you're trying to convey. Yeah, I think so. Very much. Very much. It's a metaphor of sorts, you know. Um, uh, And and at the gallery, I should not go unmentioned, I take it these pieces of art are for sale. Yes, oh, but now we have enthusiastic <laughs> head nodding going on. I'm sorry this is radio and you couldn't see that. But, okay, tell us again when the gallery is open and, if you could, uh, where, when the uh, artists, your talks will be. Right. Uh, well, the, the gallery is open Thursday through Sunday, 12 to noon, but on... 12 to 5. I'm sorry. Okay. 12 to 5. Um and then you the can, opening uh, reception yeah. is Saturday, 3 to 6. This Saturday? Yes. Okay. And mm-hmm. East Hampton Walk Night is on June 8th. Thank you. Thursday, both. June right. 8th. Right. And, and that's 5 to 8. Oh, no, 5, yeah, five to, to 8. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. We've got the times down. we got the <laughs> okay. art. It's at the Oxbow. <laughs> Diane Hart, Fran Kidder, thank you both so very, very thank much. You. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015-1400 ER The Valley. We are WHMP. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Linda Kenyon in Washington. The debt ceiling compromise heads to the full house today. CBS's Jared Hill has a look at some of what's in it. The agreement suspends the nation's borrowing limit through early 2025 in exchange for things like cuts to IRS funding, tighter restrictions on food stamps, and energy permitting reform. Failure by both houses of Congress to pass the bill by June 5th could lead to a catastrophic default. 
A new review finds more than 700,000 black children who have lost a working parent are missing out on Social Security survivor benefits. CBS's Bo Erickson has spoken to some of the families. There is a lack of communication between the Social Security Administration and grieving families. And what you come to find out when you look and talk to experts on this is that there's actually no nationwide system to track the number of children who've lost a parent throughout the country. A lawsuit has been filed after the police shooting of a child in Indiana, Indiana, Indianola, rather, Mississippi. CBS's Jennifer Kuyper has details. According to family attorney Carlos Moore, Adarian Murray called police regarding a domestic dispute that took place when the father of one of his siblings showed up and was irate. The mother, Nikayla Murray, has filed a federal lawsuit that seeks at least $5 million in damages. The 11-year-old boy was shot in the chest and survived. The police officer involved has been suspended. Officials in Davenport, Iowa, say five people remain unaccounted for after an apartment building partially collapsed over the weekend. Linda Felixiak says she doesn't know where her son is. As far as I know, he's under the rubble, so yeah, we, I want him to get him out. Nine people have been rescued so far. The apartment building partially collapsed, collapsed Sunday evening. It was undergoing renovations. Jury selection is set to begin in the trial of a former Florida sheriff's deputy charged with failing to confront the Parkland school shooter. Max Schachter's son was among those killed in the 2018 attack. School resource officers need to be carefully selected and specially trained to do the job that they are tasked with doing. Scott Peterson faces numerous charges of child neglect. If convicted, he could be sentenced to nearly a century in prison. And President Biden gets an update today on what the federal government is doing to prepare for extreme weather. President Biden meets with leaders of his federal emergency preparedness and response team today. They'll discuss the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season outlook and the ongoing wildfire season. They'll go over how they're preparing for these extreme weather events, the response plans for when they do occur, and resources put in place to help communities recover. That's CBS's Stacey Lynn with that report. And this is CBS News. Hiring's a lot easier with Indeed. Their powerful platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article? or sensitive personal information about your family. Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. A new Associated Press NORC poll finds that most for WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Springfield teacher is facing serious charges. Robert Gale Sr., a teacher at STEM Middle Academy, allegedly raped and assaulted a middle school student in the closet at the school. Investigators say the abuse began in 2021. Gale was arraigned this week in Springfield District Court and is being held on $200,000 cash bail. Gale pleaded not guilty to the charges and is denying the accusations. 
Gail has been on administrative leave since March 31st. A pretrial conference is set for June 27th. Police continue to investigate the cause of a jet ski boat collision that took the life of 51-year-old Carlos Lopez Torres. Torres was found yesterday after a three-day search of the Connecticut River. His body was found in a debris field at the bottom of the river, according to state police. Police had responded at about 7 p.m. on Sunday to a call that a man, later identified as Lopez Torres, on a jet ski collided with a boat in the Northampton section of the river. The two people aboard the boat involved in the accident are being treated at Bay State for serious injuries. Police are investigating after a teenager drowned in a swimming pool in Feeding Hills on Memorial Day. The 17-year-old boy was found unresponsive in the pool around 11.30 p.m. Crews attempted life-saving measures but were unsuccessful. The incident is being investigated by the Agawam Police Detective Bureau and the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit assigned to the Hamden County District Attorney's Office. Mostly sunny and a smoky haze out there today with a high of 80 to 84. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 86 to 90. Another shot at 90 on Friday with some afternoon showers and thunderstorms. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are joined by the mayor of Northampton, Jean Louise Shera. She will be with us again next Monday for her regular time on Mayor's Monday. We are with the mayor today. She is with us because we want you to know about some really important facts and some really important considerations and votes that are going to happen to the Northampton City Council tomorrow evening about the budget. And we want you to know about what is happening in downtown Northampton beginning this week. And before we start, I'd like to see, I know we will spend more time on this on Mayor's Monday, uh, and we'll talk more about Bombex, but would you like to bring us up to date on that, Mayor Jean-Louis Shera? Sure. Good morning, Bill and Buzz. Um, so uh, the order was rescinded by the fire chief, the, the, the order stopping operations at Bombix um, last Friday. So the fire chief rescinded that order with the agreement that Bombix would meet with the building commissioner yesterday, uh, which did happen. Um, and what was agreed upon um, was that Bombix will apply for the change of use that they were supposed to apply for in September um, and didn't. And um, that will then mean they have to start working towards a fire suppression system that's required by code, uh, including needing sprinklers and trained fire crowd control managers. So um, they need to work towards that. And in the meantime, they need to meet their requirements and restrictions that are legacied into their current use of, of the building. Um, as what's called existing non-conforming use of that building. So what that means is that they need to make some changes in how they're operating um, as they've been operating out of use. So these are um, some of the requirements that need to be met are they need to keep their occupancy below 300, they cannot serve alcohol, they can't have low lighting, which they've been having, um, they can't have movable pews, uh, they've converted some of the pews to casters to move them around um, those need to be fixed and they need to define the egress and the, the exits in the building. So um, so they say that they're gonna meet those requirements so they can, as long as they operate within those, 
um, they can continue with their programming as they move towards, um, as they apply for this change of use and move towards the fire suppression system that they need by code. And once those changes are to the fire fire safety system are made, then Bombax can go back to doing all the things it has been doing? They still need to be operating within what's allowable in their zoning. So um, as long as they as long as they do that and they're, you know, they're following the building code, fire safety code, um, anything that the license commission has has um, stipulated, then they can operate. One last question on this before we move on, Madam Mayor. Bombex, do you see it as an important cultural uh, venue here in Northampton? I absolutely do. And I know, you know, the city's been incredibly supportive of Bombex. Um, this, the mayor's office, city council, our legislators, um, we have done a lot of, we've helped them every step of the way to help to make sure that they um, knew you know what what they needed to follow and help them sort of get to this their whatever next level that they want to get to and and are able to get to in that use so you know i actually granted them an arpa grant um in february and which i'm now asking them to convert to using um for this fire suppression system so prioritizing safety they had been they had applied for it for um, to build out a commercial kitchen but um you know, we have worked really hard with them and been very supportive of them. And, and so, you know, we're, we're, I think everyone is, is really um, committed to their mission and what they're doing. But, you know, the city has an obligation to keep people safe, regardless of how beloved the venue or the mission behind it is. So um, we, you know, both things have to happen. We're speaking with the mayor of Northampton, Jeannie Louise Shera. She will be with us again on her regular time on Mayor's Monday next Monday, and we'll do more to unpack the situation with Bombex. In the meantime, there are things we need to talk about today, one of which is downtown summer in Northampton is opening and blooming. Tell us about that, and then we're going to talk about the decision city council is going to make tomorrow night. So first tell us about downtown summer in Northampton. Yes, so Summer on Strong is kicking off this week and as are um, our other locations. So there's um, Summer on Strong on Strong Avenue, there's Masonic Street Live um, in the Masonic Street parking lot. And new this year, we have um, Vans on Brewster. So Brewster Court, which is between the, um, the parking garage and the row of buildings that has the brewery, that's called Brewster Court. And we are programming that space um, in uh, collaboration with the brewery and they've put a stage there and they are actually going to be kicking off with the first music um, tomorrow on Thursday, June 1st, 6 to 8 p.m. They have Topsy and Mal DeVisa who are playing at Bands on Brewster. And then Friday Masonic Street Live kicks off um, with Peter Weitzman at 8 p.m. And Summer on Strong is doing their own programming there. So, um, Everyone should look and check out what what they're going to be uh, programming there, and it's it's all happening. So this this is the week that it all comes alive. Summer on Strong goes on. How long does summer go on? That's not the best question I've ever asked, but how long does summer go on for? Um, it goes on until um, I you know I have to double check. I'm not sure we have an end date scheduled yet. They you know they wanted to make sure that we got through the 
school graduation sort of rush. So it, it's starting now um, after Memorial Day, but um, it will end sometime after uh, sometime after Labor Day. Yeah, if you could just arrange for the same weather that we had the last few days for you know most of the summer, we'd appreciate it. If you could put that on the agenda to make the weather fine, it would be great. Really, oh, you betcha, Bill. I appreciate it. I'm not asking too much, really. <laughs> we'll get to work on that right now. Thank you. I just want to point I out. Uh, it be warm today and tomorrow. You know, I didn't get this memo from you until today, so um, <laughs> I'm sorry that we didn't make those adjustments. It's only going to rain. It's going to rain nice, soft, gentle rain between, say, 11 o'clock and 4.30 in the morning. That's that's all that's going to happen this summer, though. Plenty of rain and sunshine during the day, all brought to you. What what a program you put together for that, Madam Mayor. Really appreciate it. Listen, yes. we ha- uh, it's it's the season, it's the time, and the city council of Northampton is going to make very consequential decisions tomorrow because they're going to decide how the city is going to spend its money and whether to approve or not approve the budget you've submitted. Where does that stand? Yes, so you're you're correct. Tomorrow at the council meeting at seven o'clock, um, one of their main things on their agenda is a vote on the FY twenty four budget. Um, and so the the approved the approved uh, sorry the uh, proposed budget is for one hundred and thirty two million three hundred twelve thousand nine hundred and ninety dollars. And it is, I think, a budget that really represents forward movement on key initiatives um, for the city that are are grounded in our priorities um, that have been, you know, I feel like as as a community we've expressed and certainly um, our priorities that I have um, articulated were really important to me. So, you know, something that I think we're seeing more and more and we all can maybe relate to is that um, as people's frustration with the federal government and their kind of inability to get out of their own way um, and meet sort of the needs and address the crises of our time as that um, just is ever continuing, people are, are um, really turning more and more to their local government to, to address our needs and, and what um, what we as not just a community, but as a nation and a world need to work on, including the existential threat of the climate crisis. So um, Northampton residents need and ask more than ever from our city and expectations have really grown beyond traditional city and school services um, for a municipality to do things like demanding a bold response to climate change, um, social justice in all city services, uh, responding to economic pressures that are often sort of outside of a local control, but um, that impact our local businesses in the heart of our city with our downtown. Um, and responding more and more um, as sort of social service agencies for our most vulnerable residents to receive that, you know, the help that they they need. So, Well, well yeah, let's, un- let's unpack some of that, Madam Mayor, if we might. Uh, You've mentioned a number of different really important areas for the city's concern and for the for budgetary concerns. One, of course, is businesses and downtown. What does the budget do to address some of the issues and some of the challenges, the real economic challenges and business challenges in downtown? Well, you know, this this budget continues to support um, the people in my office who are very um, focused on economic development. So there, you know, there are two key players in the mayor's office 
um, who work on economic development. And, you know, we just talked about all the programming happening downtown. So, you know, this, this kind of, the, what, what, what um, was born out of the pandemic with Summer on Strong, we've now increased every year this programming and this, this um, activating of public space to help bring people downtown and support, um, you know, support our businesses and support our local economy and grow our local receipts. So, you know, a, a critical part of our budget um, are, is the excise tax that we get from hotel, motel and meals tax um, and any new growth that we can have. So we, this office has worked really hard to support our existing businesses, but also grow um, grow more, you know, more business and interest in Northampton. I was intrigued by your comment about the budget supporting efforts to mitigate climate change. That does seem to be something that, at least instinctively, feels like something that's uh, statewide, probably a national issue, not something that the city can do a lot about. But I think you take a different view. So help me understand that, if you would, please. Yeah, I do take a different view, and we have very committed members of our community who also take a different view and that believe we all have to do our part to address the climate crisis. So um, we have our own local goals that we are working towards, including being carbon um, neutral for all municipal operations by 2030 and then citywide by 2050. And, you know, we, I think, I and others really believe that we have to do our part to mitigate the damage we've done and try and repair and um, the damage we've done to this world. And that unless we do these things at the local level, um, and hopefully that will then put, you know, I agree, you know, we can talk about the, the huge um, corporate, uh, you know, the huge corporate actors who are responsible for a, a, a tremendous amount of the carbon output. But we all have to work at each level that we're at to, to address the climate crisis. And the more, the more we all band together on a local level and do this, the more pressure we put on larger actors. Are there any line items in the budget that you've received pushback on where people say too much, too little, or some other not totally uh, enthusiastic response or something different? Well, you know, everyone has sort of their, their pet thing they're interested in, or some people, you know, don't necessarily believe in some of the more progressive things that we're doing. But, um, you know, I, I'm deeply committed to um, a lot of these issues. So, for example, Climate Action and Project Administration is now, this is the first time that that department is going to um, appear in the budget. And uh, we are hiring for that. And that's something that I, as we just talked about, I believe in strongly. Um, this budget also continues our commitment and our investment in the division of community care. Um, the, we have a director of the DCC now, Kristen Rhodes, and a coordinator, Natalia Birch. Um, and they are currently hiring for community care responders. So that is something that, that has been a great, you know, there's been a great deal of interest in DCC. There is some pushback to it, but it's something that I'm very committed to. And I'm excited that we're at this kind of remarkable moment where we are hiring those community care responders. Um, and the plan is that this summer they will go through an extensive uh, training program, over 150 hours of training, to then begin to responding uh, to calls in September. So 
that is a big step forward for the DCC. So the Department of Community Care is the Northampton version of alternative to police response to, for 911 calls. Is that a fair characterization? That is a fair characterization. And um, it, it's the Northampton version. And we are doing it differently than other communities are doing it. We actually are, have embedded it in health and human services. So um, the Division of Community Care is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. And we view it as a, you know, a public health imperative to, to do this kind of response. We are speaking with Jane Louise Shera, the mayor of Northampton. We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about how Northampton is going to spend its money and whether or not any increase in taxes are on the horizon or not right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 101.5-1400. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. One of my friends at the Stone Soup Cafe told me a story that's typical of what happens there. She was working at the community garden at the Greenfield Town Farm. She encountered an older woman there, and it was a rough encounter. She didn't leave happy. Later on that week, she came to the Stone Soup Cafe, and she found herself sitting next to that very same woman, and they developed a relationship. And the young woman goes to help the older woman with her gardening, and the older woman is giving lessons to the younger person on different plants and how to grow various things. My name is Ari Pliskin. I'm the executive director of the Stone Soup Cafe. The Stone Soup Cafe is a weekly community cafe that takes place in the parish hall of the All Souls Church church in Greenfield. By operating on a pay-what-you-can basis, it's available to all kinds of people, and a lot of people come who are hungry and who need a meal in order to meet their basic food needs, and other people come just because they love the environment and they love the atmosphere and to have a good time and be part of something special. To learn more, please visit stonesoupgreenfield.org. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with the mayor of Northampton, Jean Louise Shera. I'd like to know, Mayor, if you would tell us, please, how do the schools, how does the, the education uh, uh, budget look in Northampton in your budget? What does it do to this year's budget? Is there an increase? It is a nominal increase, a real increase, or none of the above? Tell us, please. Gladly. So this has been like for Northampton, like just about every other community I've I've heard from, um, been a really tough year for school budgets. So um, ESSER funds, which are the um, the federal COVID relief funds that were given to schools, um, are ending, 
And just about every district I know of is facing what we're calling a fiscal cliff around this. So, you know, there's been sort of this dependence on federal funds to meet real genuine increase in needs um, that were, you know, I think there already, there was more needs in school. And then the pandemic, of course, has completely exacerbated um, some of the, the student needs. So, you know, everyone is grappling with how to deal with this fiscal cliffs. So, you know, I, I said last year I saw this coming and I was really concerned about it. Um, and this year it came and there was a significant deficit in the schools of 2.3 million. So I... Could I you stop like there for one second? You can't have sure. a deficit in the city budget. 2.3 million, that's a lot of money. That's the shortfall of what the expenditures of the schools have or are obligated to spend and what is allocated. Where does the 2.3 million come from? It's, you, you, unlike the federal government, you can't print it. Right, so you have to make cuts. You, you have to have a balanced budget. So if you have a deficit, you need to cut somewhere to, uh, to make that up. So I felt like that was just too deep and extensive and painful for our district to be able to handle a deficit of that amount. Um, and I am asking the city council to appropriate $1.2 million from the fiscal stability fund to, um, to fill that gap, a one-time use of that fund to fill part of that gap. And there were some more sort of gentle cuts that were made this year um, and uh, could be done through attrition. So, um, you know, people who were leaving the district anyway. And, and I did all of this with, um, as sort of a, a deal with the district and with the city council to say that, you know, we have to address this huge deficit this year and help out. Um, but we, what we need is a two-year plan. So we are, have to make some cuts this year and we have a new superintendent coming in on July 1st um, and she's is aware of the situation and we're gonna work together to figure out um, how to address the, the rest of the deficit that we have in the budget, you know, and there's, this is all, this is coupled with a, our continual lobbying on um, the state to increase our state funding. We get a tiny amount, a minimal aid amount of uh, state aid from, from the state as a school district. Um, and while every year the, the needs and the, um, what we're required to spend increases. So uh, something really needs to change at the state level for Northampton. And so we're, we have been lobbying to get our fair share of fair share, uh, the fair share amendment that passed overwhelmingly um, with the help of Northampton. And, um, you know, something really has to give. We, we the, the community, can't can't bear this burden much longer. Um, and so with this um, this using of the fiscal stability fund that uh, you know we are looking at the impact that's going to have on um, on our fiscal stabilization plan and when we will need an, an override. Well, that's a lot and we'll talk more about this on Monday. but is that in the offing? Is that apt to happen another? override in order to stabilize Northampton's finances if the state does not come through with increased education funding? Yes, not necessarily this next year, but, um, you know, potentially in the following year. And that, but, and that's always part of the plan. So, you know, 
uh, the former mayor created the fiscal stability plan and, and that plan calls for an override to fix an, uh, to fill an immediate hole, but also with enough to then extend a certain number of years and help us meet the ever increasing needs that the two and a half percent that we can increase under Prop two and a half um, doesn't doesn't allow for. So, um, and then after, you know, it, it's generally considered a four year plan. The, the previous one lasted seven years, thanks to some new growth and cannabis revenue, honestly. Um, and so we have to see where we are in the plan and when we need to ask the people of Northampton to come back together and figure out how we can fund our schools and services under Prop two and a half. We will continue that conversation as well. There is one matter I really do want to ask you about before we let you go uh, the, today, Mayor, and that is the question of funding for public safety, which has been a big area of contention in a lot of municipalities. Where does that stand in Northampton, and what does your budget proposal do with regard to funding of public safety, specifically police and fire? Yes, thank you. So another key part of the budget is addressing some staffing needs that we have in public safety. We are um, proposing to add a, another fire prevention officer position in fire rescue to um, address increasing mandates from the state for inspection services. There's now, um, in addition to the fact that fire rescue has had its busiest year on record um, with 8,352 calls and um, is, current, is on track for this current year to exceed that, um, they also have more requirements from the state of what they need to inspect, including all residential solar panel installations and all energy storage systems that are over one kilowatt. So um, the, the work on our fire prevention officer has greatly increased. So we are proposing to add an additional fire prevention officer to meet those mandates. Um, in the police department, we are experiencing the same national staffing shortage as everywhere, you know, these are, I just read a Washington Post article about this this weekend. Um, so you add to that the staffing reduction that happened in FY21 with the, um, the defunding by 10% of the department. Um, and we are operating with less staff and are losing more officers annually than before. And those officers are harder to replace. Um, the hiring and training pro process for police officers um, from from interview to beginning to serve is 14 to 18 months long and is dependent on when the state runs an academy. So some of it's out of our control, but it's a very, very long process. So the MPD is averaging a shortage of eight and a half officers a month or about um, a little bit over 20% of its patrol officers. And what that has meant is that there are not enough officers to meet call demand, meaning some calls you, you call for an officer and they are either, no one's able to respond right away, or if it's, um, if it's sort of triaged as a larger emergency, then someone who's on another call has to leave that call that they're currently on in process and go to um, this other, you know, a more serious call. Um, and it also means that there's just not enough um, officers to meet additional requests by residents and counselors like uh, patrol or traffic enforcement. So. Um, when there is um, a hole in a shift, when there's someone who's, who's either out on leave, um, there's a vacancy, someone who's uh, been injured on duty and is out, um, then you, we have to fill each shift. So if there's an, you know, we're, we're, we have to fill that shift with overtime and that's what we've been doing. So we're averaging 431 hours 
of overtime per month in the NPD right now, which has a huge financial impact because um, that, of course, is a time and a half. Um, but it's also, I think, the, the maybe larger impact is that it's creating um, what I would view as not a safe working environment and, and therefore also has an impact on public safety, right? So a, a significant portion of those overtime hours are forced overtime, meaning that someone has come to their shift and um, you know they think they're gonna get off their shift in an hour and then they're told that actually they're being forced to work a double shift. Um, and that creates, of course, fatigue and safety and liability concerns and, and only adds to the burnout um, and the retention problem that we've been having. So, you know, this is something that I take really seriously and feel like, one, it's, it's a poor use of tax dollars to, um, to force people to work overtime, but it's also creating um, a situation that isn't safe for anybody. But this and goes on for a while, Mayor. I mean, as you pointed out, it's going to take time to hire and train new officers for the NPD. Yes. Yeah, so what we're proposing in this budget is to create space in the budget to hire for anticipated vacancies, such as retirements. We have three retirements, um, one that just happened and two that are happening very soon. And we were not able to start hiring for those until they actually happen. So what we're looking to do in this budget is create space um, to be able to start moving new hires through that 12 to 18 month process. Um, so it's sort of anticipating a vacancy and and working to fill it when it does come about. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with the mayor of Northampton, Jean Louise Sherish. She will be back with us on Monday for Mayor's Monday. We thank you for being with us at this time. Mayor, thanks for so much. Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Springfield teacher is facing serious charges. Robert Gale Sr., a teacher at STEM Middle Academy, allegedly raped and assaulted a middle school student in the closet at the school. Investigators say the abuse began in 2021. Gale was arraigned this week in Springfield District Court and is being held on $200,000 cash bail. Gale pleaded not guilty to the charges and is denying the accusations. Gale has been on administrative leave since March 31st. A pretrial conference is set for June 27th. Police continue to investigate the cause of a jet ski boat collision that took the life of 51-year-old Carlos Lopez Torres. Torres was found yesterday after a three-day search of the Connecticut River. His body was found in a debris field at the bottom of the river, according to state police. Police had responded at about 7 p.m. on Sunday to a call that a man, later identified as Lopez Torres, on a jet ski collided with a boat in the Northampton section of the river. The two people aboard the boat involved in the accident are being treated at Bay State for serious injuries. Police are investigating after a teenager drowned in a swimming pool in Feeding Hills on Memorial Day. The 17-year-old boy was found unresponsive in the pool around 11.30 p.m. Crews attempted life-saving measures but were unsuccessful. The incident is being investigated by the Agawam Police Detective Bureau and the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit assigned to the Hamden County District Attorney's Office. Mostly sunny and a smoky haze out there today with a high of 80 to 84. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 86 to 90. Another shot at 90 on Friday with some afternoon showers and thunderstorms. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Having a hard time with your mental health or substance use? You have options. The 24-7 Behavioral Health Helpline is your front door to care. Call 833-773-2445 to speak with a trained staff member and get connected to the support you need. Want to see someone right away? Visit mass.gov cbhcs to find your local community behavioral health center, a service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. When you need some of the brightest minds in medicine, when you need patient-focused, accessible, and convenient care from providers, turn to Cooley Dickinson Hospital, a member of Mass General Brigham. One of the world's leading health systems working to bring accessible, equitable, compassionate care to all right in our community. When you need high quality care for everything from common conditions to the most complex care, go to Cooley Dickinson Hospital, a member of Mass General Brigham. Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands-on activities happening all year long. Whether you're two or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to our show. We have an exciting event that's happening this Saturday, the 27th, at uh, 10 o'clock, I think, 10 to 1230. And in June on the 17th, uh, it will be repeated from 10 to 1230. And that is, there is going to be a um, whole food, plant-based cooking, uh, I guess, demonstration instruction with Paul Sustick of Paul and Elizabeth. And we're going to talk about that. But first... Here in studio, we have Chelsea Klein, the executive director for over a year now of the incredible organization, Cancer Connection. Hello, Chelsea. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Oh, it is our pleasure to have you. So tell us a little bit about, for those who don't know, Cancer Connection, what is your mission, um, how long have you been there? Tell us everything. I would love to tell you all about it. So Cancer Connection is a nonprofit organization that has been around for over 20 years. We are based in Northampton, but we serve people all over Western Massachusetts. And our mission is to provide a haven for people who are going through cancer, but also their loved ones and their caregivers. So we offer free services, integrative therapies and support groups, um, and also our signature program, which which is Befriending, which is a one-on-one emotional support for people who are going through cancer or their loved ones. So, Chelsea, how did you get involved with Cancer Connection? Oh, and I didn't answer your other question. I've been there about a year. And oh, you've been there about yes, a year. Yes, and I'm very, very honored to be able to do this work. It's really meaningful to me and really a really important organization that does really powerful stuff in the community. Touching so many lives. Exactly. So why did you get 
interested in doing this work, and, and how did you get involved? Sure. Um, well, my mom was a participant herself about, oh gosh, maybe 18 years ago, maybe a little less, maybe 15 years ago. Um, and so it really stood out in my mind as an organization that was sort of filling the cracks of what medicine was not able to do and was holding and supporting and nurturing people in ways that were really, really necessary for their well-being, for their, for their social life, for their sense of self, and for their sense of sort of comfort. So that really stood out to me as a, a really special place. And so I realized that this was the work that I wanted to do, that I wanted to help other people to, to, feel, to feel safe and to feel held when they're going through a really hard time. And how is the Cancer Connection funded? Well, we have some really exciting events that happen throughout the year. We just had our Mother's Day Half Marathon in Hatfield, which is a big fundraiser that is a really exciting thing that happens every Mother's Day, where that was our 13th annual uh, half marathon. Um, we also have a harvest dinner that will be coming up um, this fall. So we have a variety of events um, and people who um, are moved by our work and are moved to support us and send us donations. Uh, and... So tell me about what's happening on the 27th before we turn our attention to um, Paul Sustick. Uh, well, we have um, uh, one cooking workshop coming up in June with right. Paul. And Paul very, very kindly reached out to us to offer a cooking class for our participants. Um, so people who are involved with us who are going through cancer or hard caregivers um, to uh, teach them how to make plant-based foods, um, either for themselves or for someone that they're caring for. And we were very gratefully accepted. I mean, often when people are going through cancer, I think it's it's feeling powerless or feeling really scared. And this is something that's really tangible that they can do, that's really fun, that smells good, that feels good. So and it tastes really delicious. Exactly. Let's, 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 come on, come on. Exactly, and it tastes delicious. Well, so we're really honored that he's doing this for us. And, and the response has been tremendous. People have been calling and jumping up and down trying to get into this workshop, and we've limited it to eight people, and we already have a wait list. Well, I'm going to refer to you as Paul Sustick, but that's not really your name. Your name is Paul and Elizabeth. That's what everybody thinks that your last name is, and Elizabeth. Oh, I know. When I get the phone calls in the morning from the solicitors, is Paul and Elizabeth there? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I, I'd, like, I'd like to talk to, to uh, Paul Elizabeth. Uh, and Elizabeth. <laughs> Mr. And Elizabeth. <laughs> well, Mr. And Elizabeth, they, you they, open, we Paul. Know, we know. We don't you, have much to say. You to opened them. that restaurant, what, 45 years ago in Thorns? Yeah. yeah. And um, right now you, uh, you have gone from a, uh, you are a co-founder along with Elizabeth, but now you're an employee. Your boss is named Nate, I think. I think you're right. Nate Sustick, yeah. Uh, what's your relationship? Are you related? He was 40, huh? Is, are you related to Nate Sustick? I am related. He was born <clears throat> uh, two months before we opened and grew up in the back room of, of the restaurant. More or less. <laughs> let's not to, let's not tell DCF. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seventies were a little more relaxed. <laughs> but um, and so now he's he's, he's the boss. A, he's the this boss. is every child's dream is to boss their parents around in their business, right? I guess so. I know <laughs> that, that opportunity, but <laughs> so it, it, it might be. But but, but uh, it actually raises an important question. I I'd like to know. Uh, because I did not notice a change in the restaurant um, mm -hmm. with the change. I mean, it's, it's the next generation taking over. What a, what a dream for a parent, a founder mm -hmm. of a business. Um, any changes that happened because of uh, uh, this intergen intergenerational transfer? Um, well, 
you know, after like the first day that he sent me home on the pandemic, <laughs> <laughs> um, that was my last day in the kitchen. <laughs> so it's been over three years now, which is amazing that, th you know, time has gone by. So let's and, turn around. And he had been working there eight or 10 years before, and, the, you know, we're elbow to elbow. Oh. But at this point, you know, it's time to... <clears throat> Well, it's such an institution here in Northampton. Any yeah. restaurant that makes it for 45 years has got to be a good restaurant. Yeah, he, but he was, um, his changes have been plentiful, but very subtle. <clears throat> and, you know, he's bought into the system. He bought into <clears throat> how we do things. And yeah, well, uh, well, congratulations on making that happen. It's really, really inspiring. we're still talking to each other. Yeah, and that's the best. <laughs> so let's turn our attention to what's going to happen this Saturday from 10 o'clock to 1230 mm -hmm. at, um, at Cancer Connection. Uh-huh. Why? How did you get involved? Why did you offer to do this? And what are people going to experience when they go there? Um, quickly, I got involved uh, about uh, a year ago. My my daughter, who was forty, had her first mammogram, and she got uh, stage three breast cancer, mm -hmm. and so <clears throat> sort of turned our life around a little bit. Um, so I ended up spending quite a bit of time. She lives in Idaho, <clears throat> and I ended up spending a lot of time cooking for her while she was going through chemo. And, you know, with things just sort of like, oh, I can do this. You know. and she sort of liked the cooking, of course, three meals a day. Yeah, it's, it's, but I always also learned what, <clears throat> you know, what she didn't like and, you know, when you're not feeling well, you know, how you can cook for somebody and... So I called, uh, I sort of got it through my mind that I would call the Cancer Connection when I got back and talk to Laura, and we started setting things up, and um, she's, right now my daughter's cancer-free, and um, but so it's, it's all good right now. So that's sort of how I got involved immediately. Such exactly. a powerful story. Mm -hmm. Chelsea, all too common a story, right? Family members are impacted, I won't say as much as the actual cancer victim, but um, their lives are turned upside down, as Paul just said. Absolutely. I think the caregivers are really the, the unsung heroes that do so much quiet, hidden labor that really helps the person get through their time. So it's really powerful that Paul is transforming that experience for himself into a way to help other people in the community. We're, we're really excited and we're really moved. Cancer Connection has all manner of program, not only for those who are suffering with cancer, but for their families and giving support. You want to give us a quick o overview of what some of those programs are, what are some of those uh, resources that the Cancer Connection offers? Absolutely. I'm really glad you asked me that because I love talking about this. So we have, um, and I want to remind everyone that um, all of our services are totally free of charge. So we have integrative therapies. So that would be massage, Reiki, reflexology, energy balancing. Our center is fully open and we have a treatment room um, where people can come and have private time with their um, integrative therapist. And we also have a variety of support groups that are either for specific kinds of cancer or we have like a men living with cancer. Um, we even have um, a caregiver support group. Um, and we even have fun things like knitting and writing and things like that. Um, so we're, we really try to sort of serve the whole person and, and really support people in a variety of ways. And you can just walk in. You don't need a Medicare card. You don't need a Medicaid card. You don't need a health insurance card. You just walk in and you're welcome at the Cancer Connection. That's absolutely right. Yep, and you can call us. 
And yeah. what, well, number one, what's the location of the Cancer Connection? Number two, how do people call you and contact you? Sure. Well, you can go to our website, which is cancer-connection.org, and you can learn all about us there. We have a brand new website that we're really excited about, which is really easy to navigate. Our phone number is 413-586-1642, and our address is 41 Locust Street, which is right across from Cooley Dickinson Hospital. That's really great. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Paul Sustick more about whole food, plant-based cooking, what's going to happen this Saturday from 10 o'clock to 12.30 at the Cancer Connection. We'll be right back. Yeah, thanks. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5. 1400 and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at mass.gov slash organ donor. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Did you know that veterans make up about one-third of America's adult homeless population? Only 3.9 cents of each income tax dollar last year went to veterans' benefits. Ever wonder about where your tax money goes? More information on how your tax money is being spent can be found at nationalpriorities.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we have a couple of very special guests. We've been speaking with Paul Sustick of Paul and Elizabeth Restaurant here in Northampton and Chelsea Klein, the executive director of the amazing organization, The Cancer Connection. Um, It's going to be Saturday the 17th. I think I misspoke before the break um, at 10 o'clock to 1230. There's going to be... um, Paul is going to be cooking, mm-hmm. teaching about plant-based cooking. Um, that I think, Chelsea, that's going to be on Zoom if people want to participate and they can't do it live. That's right. And we will film it, too, so people can watch the recording of it. So one more time, how will people get in touch if they want to register? I think registration is required. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Um, so you can call our center, which is 413-586-1642. And you can also go to our website, which is cancer-connection.org. And then is there an events button or something that brings them to 
this event? Yes, and we have a calendar too, so you can see all the groups that we offer and all the things that are happening at Cancer Connection. So, Paul, I, I have a question I've yeah. wanted to ask you for the last, uh, I don't know, 25 years or so. <laughs> but I really, I want to know, with regard to the uh, fish chowder at Paul and Elizabeth, right. when you invented this 45 years ago, did you have any idea that this menu item would still be an enormously popular one 45 years later? And what did you do? How did you do that? Oh, were fish invented by that time? <laughs> well, quickly, you know, our training came um, in the mid-70s, early 70s, when we worked at a natural foods restaurant called the Seventh Inn in Boston. And we trained under uh, a Japanese uh, chef, Hiroshi Hayashi. And <clears throat> it was sort of a, a restaurant slash cooking school, but he... Um, you know, taught us how to do, and at that time we were not using any dairy in our cooking. <clears throat> so um, the fish chowder evolved, you know, without using any dairy and just vegetables and, and a flour-based roux. Yeah. And is that still true? And it's still true. Fifty years later. Chowder without dairy. Chowder without dairy. It's delicious. Thank you. <laughs> so let's turn our attention to what what will people experience if they participate either virtually by Zoom or in person for those lucky people who can actually be there mm -hmm. live and in color watching you perform your magic. What's going to happen on Saturday at 10 o'clock at the Cancer Connection? Well, well, wherever we'll welcome people in. And I told people to bring their cutting boards and whatever they use for knives at home and we'll try to adjust to make it easier for them if, if they don't have the proper tools, which is always discourages people sometimes if, uh, if their knife is not sharp or if their board's too small. And then we'll do some, um, we do some knife skills. Do you say knife skills or life skills? Uh, <laughs> knife skills. Okay, knife skills, <laughs> got it. And how to, you know, cut a vegetable, how to cut vegetables. Um, so on the last class, we did quite a few things. We did um, a, one of my favorite, a uh, green split pea soup. We did a... Oh, another one of my favorites. Um, I mean, after the fish chowder, but it's really <laughs> right up there. And, we, you know, we put miso in it, which, you know, kind of surprised people. And, um, we did a, a ginger tamari garlic broth, which <clears throat> I think for anyone who has any kind of illness, it's sort of the chicken soup of natural plant-based cooking. Mm. So it's like a noodles and broth. And um, and we put some green, you know, <clears throat> showed them how to use greens with that. We used kale and spinach. And we made, um, we did a, a polenta, which is a, a relatively easy dish. And... Um, Brown rice, brown rice pudding, right? We did a brown rice. Yep, we 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 did a we baked brown rice, um, which is sort of um, something that people never thought of doing. Baking rice. Um, it, it really it just sounds so incredible. Yeah, I mean, so we kept going until it got too late. But then everyone ate, and everyone brought a lot of food home. That's Bill. <laughs> that's Bill's favorite part is the <laughs> eating. Well, you Chelsea, can come, come at. Uh, 
1245, there'll be a lot of food. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Want to give that address? <laughs> Chelsea Klein. It's in the neighborhood. <laughs> I, I, I think I read that there's no charge for this, but how is this going to benefit Cancer Connection, which I think is what everybody wants to do? Well, it's this kind of event is not about benefiting Cancer Connection per se. This event is about benefiting the participants and then the caregivers. And this is about building out more community and more opportunities for people to gain some skills to um, feel better in their lives right now. Chelsea, is there some uh, generalization that you can make about people being more interested in their diet and their what they're uh, eating uh, when they uh, receive a cancer diagnosis? Or is this simply, you know, we all have to eat, and so this is a benefit for all of us? Well, I think just like Paul said, when, when his daughter was going through it, everything was sort of turned upside down. And I think that's that's the common thread for people, no matter what their diagnosis, no matter where they live, when they receive a diagnosis or their family is grappling with one, then things are really turned upside down. So you sort of reevaluate how you do things and and try to get some sense of control and comfort. And so doing a cooking class like this is a, is a tangible and fun and delicious way to, to sustain your person, sustain yourself and to get your hands really in the mix of like, of doing something like it gives you some action to, to take care of someone to do something like that. So and you're I, taking care with healthy food. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, that to me is the amazing combination here. Not only is it delicious, it's healthy. Uh-huh. Who knew those two went together? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Bill, you mentioned about like the continuity of the restaurant over the years, right? Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I just want to say Paul's an amazing teacher. And so he was able to teach Nate how to keep the restaurant in, in, in like sustaining. And he's able to teach people how to make these delicious foods. And it's amazing to witness. Paul Sustick, amazing teacher. I just wanted to ask you, I asked you before how people can find out about events. But what if people want to be in touch with the Cancer Connection because they have cancer or a loved one has cancer? How do they contact you? Uh, Calling us, 413-586-1642. Going to our website, www.cancer-connection.org. Or just stopping by at 41 Locust Street, right across the street from Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Well, all we can say is thank you. Thank you on behalf of all of us, especially those of us who have experienced this dreadful disease or have a loved one who has. Meanwhile, all of the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us today on Talk to Talk. Remember to walk the walk. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com.